Welcome to the Craftsmanship Quarterly Podcast. I'm producer Chris Igusa. For the last eight weeks, we've been publishing a series of stories and podcasts as a part of our fall issue, Native American Craft, the Southwest. We've collaborated with an incredible cast of writers, photographers, and narrators, many of whom are indigenous, to bring you these stories. But behind the scenes, working tirelessly, has been our guest editor, Rosemary Diaz. Because of her deep cultural knowledge and commitment to the craft of storytelling, we've been able to achieve a depth and authenticity in these stories that would have been impossible without her. Rosemary is a longtime writer and anthologized poet. She spent much of her childhood at Santa Clara Pueblo, part of the ancestral homelands of the Tewa people, located near Santa Fe, New Mexico. We're going to end our fall issue with this conversation between Rosemary and Lori Weed, Craftsmanship Quarterly's managing editor. We'll hear about Rosemary's life and work, the Native art renaissance, and the surprising controversy around the terms art and craft. Plus, Rosemary will read some selections from her poetry, which speaks to the themes of identity, language, and belonging. Rosemary, welcome. Thank you so much for being here today and every day for a little over a year now working alongside us to develop and produce this issue on Native American craft. Hello, thank you. So would you like to introduce yourself to our podcast audience and tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. Um, I'm Rosemary Diaz, and I live in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Um, I was raised mostly at Santa Clara Pueblo, which is a Indian reservation in northern New Mexico. I studied creative writing here in Santa Fe at the Institute of American Indian Arts, and then at Naropa Institute in Boulder. And then I went to UC Santa Cruz and continued to study creative writing and literature there and have been just uh, freelancing ever since I graduated from UCSC, mostly based in uh, here in Santa Fe for most of that time. Great. Well, you left out a few important things, which if you don't mind, I'll fill in that you're um, an incredible and award-winning poet, among other talents. And we have some copies of some of your poems, one of which is uh, a really nice reflection on how you came to Santa Clara Pueblo as a child called Heading into Indianness. And we were wondering if you might be willing to read it. Okay, so this is part one. Heading into Indianness. It happened during the summer of 1970, August. Mom and I made the trip from California to New Mexico. From Los Angeles to Santa Clara Pueblo, to be exact. On the banks of the once roaring Rio Grande. We were going to live here now, on the reservation. We were going to be Indians. We were going to be Indians because death pushed us into Indianness. I guess that was all right with me, being pushed into Indianness. With only five years of history behind me, I imagine it was hard to know for sure. It wasn't as if I had a choice, but I do remember feeling excited about a possible metamorphosis. Imagine me, a chrysalis, and about seeing snow for the first time. I don't remember feeling frightened about leaving everything we knew, everyone we knew. Not then, not yet. 
Growing up, Mom traveled from New Mexico to California and back to New Mexico many times. She, her parents, and six siblings moving across the desert toward lawns and promises, then back toward sandstone canyons and adobe walls. Their trips always began early, usually just around sunrise. Family trait inherited, Mom and I were packed and ready to head east at daybreak. Straight into the desert heat we rolled, By noon, we'd traveled several hundred miles. The shadow of our custom-painted purple VW bug stayed with us, past bluffs and mesas, over forgotten sections of track that once held train, through sandstone canyons, across stretches of prairie, losing green to the fading season. We were a shadow flashing against the changing landscape. Mom and me and our quiet companion, our purple, shape-shifting witness, growing and shrinking in the constantly morphing light. That we resembled two seeds in a small, plump Japanese eggplant was my assessment of this shadowy us riding along the cliffs. A small, plump Japanese eggplant heading into Indianness. That's a really beautiful poem. Thank you. Sorry, I don't know why I get so emotional. It's an incredible image to to envision and think about. And this theme of being in between two worlds or moving between two worlds, so many people with native heritage live in that space. It's interesting to have, I guess, a choice in shaping that in your own life. Because I don't think that's something that everyone has. Like you're born into this and that's what you are. But when you're like quin racial or quad racial, you know, like I am quin racial, I guess. I kind of identify with parts of all of those things, you know, because I don't know how else to explain. Like, why do I cry when I hear old things? Ein? Why do I, why am I obsessed with learning the words? Oh, probably because we're part Scots Irish, you know? <laughs> or why is building this ofrenda for Dia de los Muertos so emotional? Oh, well, probably because we're connected to that, you know? So it all makes sense. It's very cool that you're connected to so many different parts of your heritage. The way that you have been working between two worlds on this issue and helping us to build trust and build bridges between our publication and uh, ourselves being outside the Native communities and um, the writers and the contributors and the subjects of these stories. Um, Can you talk a little bit about some of the challenges and rewards of, of that work and what the year has been like for you? Yeah, I have developed these connections with people, you know, through my writing over the years. So I've, I enjoy that part of it just because it gives me a chance to, you know, reconnect with people that I respect and admire and so forth. One of the things that I learned working on the issue that I did not know was that there seems to be a sensitivity in the Native American art world about the term craft versus fine art. And as a craftsmanship publication, we, of course, honor craft and, and revere it, and that is the world that we work in. And what we mean by craft does, doesn't mean that something that's being made is not also fine art. It just means that it's something that's made to be used. And 
at the level that we cover it, we are talking about master artisans and craftspeople that have um, just a depth of skill that is not common. Um, so the term craft is sometimes taken or used in a demeaning way in the art world. Uh, can you explain that a little bit and, and where that comes from? Um, I think it comes from just the history of Native artists uh, sort of having to kind of just dispel the notions that what they were creating wasn't as valuable or as creative or as beautiful as what other artists are creating. So I think there's a, just a misunderstanding of how we're, how the term is being used, you know, I mean, craftsmanship, yeah, to craft something. If you just sort of go to the literal meaning, there's no offense there, but it's because how it's been used to label Indian art for so long because it was limiting what was being accepted as art and what was being left behind, so to speak, in the category of, oh, that's just craft. So it's just the rejection of the term and the connotations that came with it, the way that the galleries and the collectors were using the term. That's why there's sensitivity to it. When you were reaching out and trying to build these relationships and help us develop the stories for this issue, if you experienced that sort of pushback around the word craft or the fact that it's a craftsmanship magazine? No, I really didn't. Um, but, uh, but you know, when I talk to people or even emailing a couple of people um, when explaining to them, you know, this issue is going to be on a Southwest native craft. And I would elaborate and say to that person or write it in the message that, um, you know, we know that what you're doing is fine art. We're not trying to categorize you like in any way saying that what you're doing is not fine art. And the reason I, it was just because I know there's still a lot of sensitivity around that differentiation between art and craft. Well, and that's great because, again, that would be something that we would not have known to do without your help. Um, there were so many little cultural niceties and protocols that you were able to just smooth out and smooth the way for this issue to happen. For you, is there something or that sets the work that we've done now that we're almost done with the issue we will be done by the time this story comes out. Is there anything that sets this issue apart from other work that's been done about Native art in the Southwest or anywhere? Well, I think, yeah, it's the subjects that were featured in this issue really were put in such a beautiful light and and in such a respectful way. You got a, a sense of the soul, you know, not just like, a subject for this to really serve. I mean, this is huge. This is so huge. Honestly, for native artists to have this kind of platform and, you know, many of these people have been featured in big magazines and so forth, but th this has brought it to life in a different way. You know, it's something that's going to be now out there forever for other generations to see and be proud of. 
I hope that this will give the magazine and our team some credibility to do more stories on Native artisans. I would love to see that happen because, as you know, we've barely scratched the surface with this issue. I know. I'm already thinking like, okay, what region are we going to do for the next issue? (laughs) Are we going to do plain Southwest code? Like my brain was already rolling, you know. Let's start brainstorming. I'm ready. Here, at the team that already existed between Chris, the audio producer, and Ta, the publisher, and myself, we've talked a lot about how much we learn every time we talk to you and how much we've appreciated having you available as a resource, not just to develop the issue, but just because it's so interesting to learn um, directly from what you know. And you've talked a a little bit about uh, art as a unifying language for Native peoples, especially in the region where you are, where you know so many people. And I was curious if we could talk about that a little bit more. You've you've mentioned um, what you call the Native art renaissance. And I thought that was a really fascinating way to describe it. Could you tell us more about that? Well, I think the Native art renaissance, probably the way I'm thinking of it, probably started in the mid-80s when a lot of Native artists just said, you know, I'm not going to just create by these long-established templates, and they wanted more creative freedom. I think it stemmed out of that, of just wanting more autonomy and that um, being able to just be an artist without all these dictations from outside. Really, the potters, the Pueblo potters are really, really the the ones who led the way toward more innovations in the other traditional art forms. I remember like back in the, it was probably in the early eighties when my cousin first started off in her pottery career and she and her sister, they were doing more contemporary work. And, but then I remember that uh, my cousin, Tammy, she got a, a commission from somebody who was a Harley Davidson enthusiast and he wanted a pot with motorcycles on it. So she did it. She was so young and just starting out then, but it was, it was like the, the foundation for her career. She made it clear from the get-go that she was going to do what she wanted to do. And a lot of other potters followed suit and became more, you know, started to take more liberties. But that part of the problem was that the market didn't want to relinquish any control, right? They wanted to, the collectors wanted to continue to dictate standards, And that just, you know, like, I mean, what artist wants to be controlled to that extent? So that they eventually just had to, you know, deal with it because it didn't, wasn't going to stop. And it's just gone on and on from there. The market up to that point was trying to define what Native art is Mm -hmm. or was without really consulting the artists and their vision. Yeah, I mean... Back then in the in the early 80s up to the mid 80s you know the the what was known as indian art was a lot of 
very stereotypical stuff. And people that stepped out of that risked um, not making sales, not getting into that gallery, not getting those buyers, you know. And um, so the people who said, no, we're not doing that, you know, we're not doing that anymore. You know, it just became like, if you try to dam up water, it's going to take another course. It's the same with art. You try to stop an artist from being creative, there's no way. You know, like I said, there were risks involved in in doing anything new for so long. But once that was sort of blasted out by these artists who were brave enough to say, no, I'm not, I'm not doing that anymore. And you said, um, I think of one of our conversations, and you may have been quoting somebody, you said that Native American art is any art made by Native Americans. Well, when I was, when I first went to the Institute, I think I was like 17, I was pretty young. Um, this is the Institute of American Indian Arts, sorry. Institute of American Indian Arts, yeah. And um, so when I first started going to school there, I took a fashion design class that was taught by an Osage uh, artist named Wendy Ponka. But yeah, she would say that because, you know, because she was experiencing this. She would go and try to sell her art at galleries and such, and people would say, oh, that's not Indian enough. And she just got so sick of it. I think she said it out of frustration, and she had this real heavy Oklahoma accent, and she would say, you know, I'm so sick of this. Indian art is art made by Indians, period. You know, and and I and I used to really kind of, you know, ponder that in my young brain. Like, what does that mean? How can that know? It has to be, if it, how can it be Indian art if it's abstract? You know, like I had that, those ideas in my mind too. I was exploring all of those ideas in my own brain. But when I heard her say that, it just was like, wow. I mean, it really transformed my way of thinking about Indian art. And it made so much sense to me. And I was like, yeah, you're right. Indian art is in, is art made by Indians, period. You know, like, and what I mean by that is we are not going to change our art forms to, you know, console the market and the collectors. They're going to have to keep up with us. As it should be. Yeah. And I guess I'm talking about like, you know, when you go into like a Texaco in Flagstaff or somewhere and there's like a war shield made in China or there's you know a painting of a of a maiden with long hair in the wind on a, a horse riding across the desert like those kind of images are what it's like Hollywood the Hollywood image of Indians so it kind of parallels out in the art world I'm just surprised at how much people miss out on because they're so stuck in that way of thinking. And it surprises me now in 2022, 40 years after that conversation was still, you know, 40 years after I remember hearing that comment that I'm still, that now I'm faced with it 40 years later. Well, and some of it is just lack of exposure. You know, people outside of the culture aren't necessarily aware of everything that's happening in the Indian art world. And they have a preconceived notion yeah. of what quote unquote Indian art looks like. 
and they're surprised when they find out, um, no, that there's much more to it than that. And Indian art is art made by Indians. You know, art in the native world, like how many languages are there? Over 500 languages there were at some point, you know, and, um, and complex languages and languages that, uh, you know, even among the Pueblos, the languages vary. And there is not a universal native language. Like sometimes people have asked me, you know, uh, how do you say this in Indian? It's like, well, which one of the 500 languages are you talking about? You know, I, I kind of came to this to this idea that like, well, what is our universal language? What does bind us together? And what I always come back to, well, it's art. Art is our unifying language in the native world because that's what brings us together. That's what binds us as a community. And I think it's how we understand each other. And so it's a language that we all take from and we all give to. And just like a spoken or written language, it's it's ever evolving, you know, it's not something static. It's always morphing and, and changing, but the but you can step back into it. No matter how long you've kind of haven't spoken the art language, you can step back into it and pick up the conversation again, just like that, you know? And I find that incredible. I mean, look, Indian market just celebrated a hundred years and that's tribes from all over the country. And so it's still this interchange of ideas um, and expression that moves around just like it always has, I guess, you know, art has uh, ideas and so forth. So one of my favorite poems of yours, Rosemary, is called A Sacred Place, Meditations on Corn. And it really reflects on some of these themes that we've been talking about and uh, the importance of language and the shared languages. Uh, So we're going to play an excerpt of that poem that you read for an audience several years ago. Clouds gathered from all directions. They swirled into and out of and over each other, and their shapes changed as they moved through the sky. Centers stretched into edges, edges pulled back into centers. A thin layer of yellow light weaved itself through the blue air above us, sending long, thin shadows onto the ground. Walking homeward again, we thought of the creation stories told to us by Taha, how our people came from the north, the place of emergence, and traveled down mountains and mesas and across flat grass-covered prairies and through deep rivers and shallow streams and over watery marshes thick with cattails and around frozen clear lakes and past deep caves and under juniper trees heavy with berries and into snow-filled forests. They traveled in accordance with the positions and movements of the stars and listened closely to the wind currents that spun about them. This was the time of learning and of naming things, and the people gathered great knowledge from all that surrounded them. They named trees and mountains and hills and clouds. They named reflections and ponds and spirals and fine dirt. 
They named animals and plants and colors of clay. They named patterns of bird tracks near the river's edge. They named the different sizes of raindrops. They named the sounds of rushing leaves. They named the taste of tree sap and the texture of salt. They named the motions of sand swirling in streamside springs. They named the different shades of light around the moon. So I hope that this issue was just the beginning of collaborating with you and of covering and honoring Native craft in all of its forms. I would love to see more stories and more special issues on Native craft. Oh, definitely. Yeah, thank you. It's like made me feel really proud to be um, part of it, you know, to be able to bring these artists into the forefront of this publication and and give them, you know, that much deserved attention. And this magazine has just been just beyond rewarding. I'm so glad it's been rewarding for you. It's been so rewarding for me and for us as a team to um, watch these relationships develop. And it's been very exciting to be able to reach into some of these communities and be able to interact with people and tell their stories. That was Rosemary Diaz in conversation with Craftsmanship Quarterly Managing Editor Lori Weed. This is the final piece in our fall 2022 issue on Native American craft, the Southwest. To read other stories from the issue, visit our website at craftsmanship.net. This episode was produced by me, Chris Igusa. Todd Oppenheimer is the founding editor and executive director. If you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to the podcast so you don't miss any upcoming episodes, including stories, interviews, and audio projects featuring some of the world's most skilled artisans and innovators. The best way to support what we're doing is to share our work with others and rate our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whichever platform you use. Thanks for listening. <laughs>